0: You can learn a lot of theology from a beaver, a rat, and a mole. You no doubt are familiar with the story by C.S. Lewis, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. In the story, four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, pass through the wardrobe's portal to find the kingdom of Narnia imprisoned under the spell of the white witch, Aslan the lion, who is the king of Narnia, is nowhere to be found, although rumor has it that he is on the move. And he appears to have abandoned his kingdom to the White Witch, who spends her leisure time turning the inhabitants of Narnia into statues. And so Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy set out to explore this strange and somewhat frightening new country that is locked under the spell of the White Witch. And they stumble upon Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who assure the children that Aslan is about to return to set things right. They're also informed that a prophecy suggests that the four children have a very important, even central part to play in the drama that is about to unfold. In fact, they learn that they're going to rule with Aslan over his kingdom. Upon hearing about Aslan, the kids want to know what he is like. His "'Is he a man?' asked Lucy. "'Aslan, a man?' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.' "'Ooh,' said Susan, "'I would thought he was a man. "'Is he quite safe? "'I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion.' That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslam without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis is describing King Jesus. And oh, how Esther and Mordecai needed a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to read back then. Oh, that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was published in the 480s B.C. Even Haman, the enemy of the Jews, could have benefited from reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if it was published back then, then they all would have learned this truth. God is not safe, but he is good. And that's what all the players in this story in the book of Esther needed to learn. God is not safe. He is holy, set apart from all of his creation. He is infinitely glorious and he hates sin but sometimes we don't like to think of God this way do we and for some Christians that's all they talk about all they ever talk about is how angry God is at sin and if you watch them closely you'll discover that they are very angry too They're angry disciples. You've seen them with the signs that say, God hates blank. You would think that all God did was hate when you look at these people. Most of the angry Christians that I have ever met have a high view of themselves. Everybody else is wrong and in need of correction and they tend to overemphasize God's anger and then that's actually what they become. They become angry Christians. But then others... Only ever talk about God's love. I mean, he's a softy. He uses hand lotion from bed, bath, and beyond. They never talk about God's anger. And what Paul Tripp said about God certainly applies to what's happening in the book of Esther. Paul Tripp said this God is angry. God will not forsake his holy cause. He will not allow us to be in the way of what he has planned for his universe. He will not abide our no's. But it's not the anger of a vengeful, evil person who is out of control and wants to harm. It's the anger of grace. It is an anger of a God who is full of zeal for his holy cause, who will not lose his own We must quit looking at the anger of God as the embarrassing uncle of Christian theology. We'd rather kind of hide it. It it makes us uncomfortable and embarrasses us. Listen, in a world where evil exists, the anger of God is your hope. You don't want a God who looks at the fallenness of this world. You don't want a God who looks at human rebellion. You don't want a God who looks at all the brokenness around us and says, it's okay. Because it's not okay. You want a God who will stand up and say, I will stand against that which stands against my holy will. That anger is the hope of the universe. And because God is who he is, that anger is never a contradiction of his love. It's never a contradiction of his grace because in the magnificence of his holiness, his anger and his grace kiss. And we see this expressed in Esther chapter 7. So turn now, turn there now with me. We see that God is not safe, but He is good. And Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is about to learn this truth in Esther chapter 7. Haman is about to learn that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of the Israelites, is a God who is full of zeal for his holy cause and who will not lose his own. Haman is about to learn that Yahweh is a God who stands against that which stands against his holy will. So look at Esther chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. And hear the words of the God who is not safe. But is good. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, remember where we left off at the end of chapter 6 two weeks ago. King Ahasuerus could not sleep. He had a bad case of insomnia, and he discovered in the royal records that Mordecai was never honored for saving his life. Mordecai had under, uncovered this assassination plot, and yet he was never rewarded for that. And Haman, inadvertently, we saw in chapter 6, told the king how He should honor Mordecai. So Haman had to parade Mordecai, his enemy, through the city of Susa and honor him. And then Haman returned home and was told by his wife and friends that he was no match for Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And then right after he hears these words, Haman is escorted away to Esther's second party, which happens in chapter 7. Now, keep in mind what we have seen of Haman so far. Haman loves power. Haman wants to be in control. He wants to be known and loved by people. He's the guy that retweets compliments on Twitter about himself. Somebody compliments him, he retweets that. He talks about himself all the time. And the only time he is really happy is when he gets recognition. When people compliment him. When he gets recognition. That's when he becomes alive. That's when he's happy. That's when he has a spring in his step. He's that insecure. When Haman's ego is stroked, that's when life is good for Haman. He got the invitation to Esther's second party. And when he left in chapter 5, he was on top of the world. He went to the king's house in the middle of the night. And he thought the king was going to shower him with honor. He was giddy with excitement. He thought he was the man but now there's been this reversal, and now Mordecai, his enemy, has been elevated. But Haman strikes me as one who just will not go down. He's, he's ever positive. So I imagine him going to Esther's second party with a spring in his step, because he's still the only one in the Persian Empire who's been invited to this party. But he doesn't know yet that Esther is a Jew and that she's about to expose him. So I picture Haman rebounding real quickly, and he's still in good spirits, because he's the only person in the kingdom who gets to come to a second party with Esther and the king. And so we begin chapter 7, and Esther and King Ahasuerus and Haman are having a few drinks, and the king asks Esther again what her request is. Now, notice how shrewd Esther is here. First, she refers to the king in the first person. She says, "'If I have found favor in your sight,' She's getting personal with the king here, hinting at their relationship as husband and wife. Remember, she hasn't seen him for 30 days. Esther is linking her identity with the king. She is his wife. She's the queen, so she gets personal here. Now, earlier in chapter 5, she spoke to the king in the third person. She said, if it please the king, let the king do this. But now she speaks in a more personal way. Second, Esther actually asks for two things here. She asks for her safety and the safety of the Jews. The king's word seems to imply one request, one wish. He says, what is your wish? What is your request? In other words, what do you want? But Esther capitalizes on these two words, request and wish, by saying, let my life be granted for my wish And my people for my request. She links her destiny with the Jewish people. And so to threaten one is to threaten the other. And Esther very shrewdly uses the exact words that Haman used back in chapter 3 when he asked the king to pass a law to kill all the Jews. In verse 4, Esther says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and be killed and to be annihilated. And Haman used those exact words when his letters were sent out throughout the empire. Esther 3.13, he sent out letters to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. Esther has chosen her words carefully. She chose Haman's words that were in Haman's law. And perhaps at this point when Haman hears these words, he chokes as he, dr- he takes a drink of wine. That's kind of how I picture him. He's taking a drink and, and she says the words destroyed, killed, annihilated, and he's like... <coughs> You know, Esther has linked her identity with the king, her husband, and she's linked her destiny with her people by using these words. So Esther is letting the king know that if something happens to the Jews, then that means that something happens to her, and if something happens to her, then that means that something will happen to the king. His wife will be killed. Now, keep in mind, too, that a few hours earlier, the king had learned that there was an assassination plot on his life five years earlier. Remember, Big Thana and Teresh plotted against the king, and now Esther is letting him know that someone else has recently plotted against the king, and it will end in the death of his own wife. She's shrewd, but Esther's shrewdness continues. She's got more shrewdness in her tank. She tells the king that if she and her people were merely sold as slaves, then they would be able to endure that. But it's the word slaves that Esther uses that demonstrates the providence of God and exposes Haman's evil plan. Back in chapter 3, this is what Haman said when he made this petition to the king to have all the Jews killed. Esther 3.9, it says this, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. That Hebrew word destroyed that Haman used is a homophone for the word slave that Esther used. In other words, they sound the same even though they have two completely different meanings. For example, in the English language, you can desert someone or you can eat dessert. Well, that's what happens here in Esther. There are two words that sound the same but have different meanings. The Hebrew word is laabadim. So Haman tells the king, "If it please the king, let the Jews be destroyed, la abedim." And then Esther comes around and says, "If we had been merely sold as slaves, as la abedim." And so I think when Haman asked the king to destroy the Jews back in chapter three, I think the king thought he meant enslave them. If it please the king, let the Jews be enslaved, la abedim. Haman couched his evil plan inside a word that sounds the same as another word. The king heard la laabadim and thought enslave them and not destroy them. That's why he is surprised when Esther tells him that there is a traitor who wants to destroy her people. King Ahasuerus is shocked when Esther tells him this and he says something like this. Who did this? Where is he? Who tricked me into destroying a whole people group? And then Esther, under the providence of God, uses a different word for slavery that sounds exactly the same as destroy. And perhaps at this point, Haman chokes as he takes another drink of wine. That's how I picture him. He's taking a drink, and when she says the word la'abadim, it's like, (coughs) you know, you okay, Haman? (coughs) Yeah, yeah. What'd you say? La'abadim? And now... King Ahasuerus can connect the dots with this information. I picture the king thinking and having the lights go off in his head and saying something like this to Esther. Wait a minute, honey. You mean to tell me that the law that I passed was not to enslave the Jews, but to destroy the Jews? Wait a minute. I know what you're saying. You're a Jew? Wait, what? You're a Jew? Huh? But you eat Bacon. Esther's got a lot of splaining to do to Hashuares. She just dropped a bomb on him. It's like he walked into the kitchen one day, and she was making some biscuits and gravy and drinking some sweet tea, and he says, what's all this? And Esther replies, I'm an Okie. I'm from Oklahoma. This is what we eat for breakfast, and we drink a lot of sweet tea. And Hashuares says, wait a minute, you're an Okie? As in the Merle Haggard song, I'm an Okie from Muskogee kind of Okie. But Ashiwaris doesn't have time to deal with the bomb that Esther just dropped on him. He's just connected the dots and found out that after five years of marriage, his wife is a Jew, but he can't even go there because she just told him that someone wants to kill her and her people. It's like Esther said, oh, by the way, I have a big secret I have kept this secret from you for over five years. Sweetie, sit down and don't freak out, okay? Are you ready? Here it is. I'm a Jew. By the way, did you know there's a guy in your kingdom who not only tricked you into passing a law, but he wants to murder me and all my people, the Jews? She's shrewd. But there's more to Esther's shrewdness here. By using the word slavery, she lets the king off the hook. She lets the king off the hook for approving of the mass destruction of the Jews. She lets him off the hook for unwittingly approving of the murder of his own wife. Now, I know what you're thinking. These people need some marriage counseling. Yes, they do. They've got some serious issues. Esther has let the king Ahasuerus off the hook, and now he can say that he was tricked by Haman because he misheard him. He thought Haman was asking to enslave a people group, not destroy them. And so the king saves face, and this will then further highlight how wicked and evil Haman is when Esther points the finger at him. Esther is showing her husband that not only did Haman trick the king, he also put a death threat on his wife when he did this. Haman unknowingly threatened the queen's life and he tricked the king in order to do it. In other words, Haman unwittingly was asking King Ahasuerus to pull the trigger on the gun that was pointing at his wife, Queen Esther. This girl is shrewd. I told y'all, she still got it. She's shrewd. She used her looks back in chapter 2 to get what she wanted. She used her looks again in chapter 5 to get what she wanted. And now she uses her brains and she's got the brains to back it all up. She's smart. She's got the body and the brains. Esther is the total package. And so how does King Ahasuerus respond to all of these revelations? Is he going to kick Esther out for hiding her true identity and deceiving him all these years? Remember what he did to his first wife in chapter 1? She wouldn't come to his party and he said, you're not the queen anymore, you're banished. What's he going to do to Esther who's hidden a secret from him for five years? Look at verses 5 and 6. And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? And who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I think Haman... Yes, you guessed it. I think Haman definitely choked this time as he took a drink of his wine. Haman challenged Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, the God of the Jews, the God of the Israelites. And he's about to eat the crow that Esther is serving up. Haman is about to open his fortune cookie. And he's going to find out that it reads, God is not safe, but he is good. That's what Haman's fortune cookie read that day. Haman is about to learn that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, is a God who is full of zeal for his holy cause and will not lose his own. Haman is about to learn that Yahweh is a God who stands against that which stands against his holy will. And so the king wants to know who it is that put a bounty on the head of his wife. Little does he know that his best drinking buddy, Haman, the one who is sitting at dinner with them and who just opened his fortune cookie, he is the man. Now, the Hebrew language here is interesting. There's a lot happening here in their words in the Hebrew language. The king's words begin with six monosyllabic words here, which, according to one Hebrew scholar, sound like a machine gun fire when pronounced aloud. Mehuzeh ezehu is what King Ahasuerus says. Who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? Mehuzeh ezehu. Who is this one? Literally, the Hebrew reads, Who is this one? Where is this one who has filled his heart to do this? And the stress of the O sound in the Hebrew here expresses the sudden fury of the king's response. Asher, mala'o libel, so ken. But then Esther's reply in Hebrew is equally impressive. She says, A man, an enemy, and a foe. Haman, the evil, the this. The last phrase when she mentions Haman by name produces a sharp rhythmic effect in Hebrew. Haman, harah, hazeh. Picture Esther pointing at Haman and emphasizing each syllable. Haman, harah, hazeh. A man, an enemy, a foe. This wicked Haman. Haman, harah, hazeh. Haman, hurrah, hazeh. And the narrator doesn't give us any more details about what happens. He expects us to be able to picture Esther pointing at Haman. And he expects us to pan the camera over to Haman and see his expression. And he's choking on his wine for sure here. And then he expects us to turn the camera to the king. He wants us to use our imagination. He assumes that we know this is an awkward situation. He assumes that we have seen enough reality TV that we can picture what this dinner party was like. Look at verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one, the one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. So the king hears that Haman is the one who tricked him and put a bounty on his wife's head. And so he's triggered. He leaves the meal and he goes out into the garden. Meanwhile, Haman is begging for his life. He's begging Esther to spare his life. He he knows that the king is going to kill him. Now, what a reversal has happened here. A few minutes earlier, Esther was pleading for her life with the king. And now it's Haman who is begging for his life. Earlier, it was Haman who was so angry that Mordecai the Jew would not bow down before him that he wanted to kill him. And now it's Haman who is groveling before Esther the Jew and asking her to spare his life. What a reversal! Oh, to be sure, God is silent in this book. His name, Yahweh, is not mentioned in this book. But though God is absent, he is very much present. And just as the king returns, Haman falls down on top of Esther as he is begging for his life. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, that verse there should convince you. As the king walks in, Haman's begging for his life, and he falls on top of Esther. Now, what do you think that looks like? The king thinks that Haman is assaulting Esther, that he's trying to rape her. In fact, the New English Translation, the Net Bible, translates verse 8 this way. When the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet of vine, Haman was throwing himself down on the couch where Esther was lying. The king exclaimed, will he also attempt to rape the queen while I am still in the building? Now, the narrator uses the key word here, fall. Haman falls on top of Esther. The Hebrew word for fall is actually the word nufal, And it was used of Haman back uh, in Esther 3-7 when Haman cast lots. In other words, as he cast the lots, the lots fell. And when the king instructed Haman in Esther six ten to honor Mordecai, he told Haman literally in Hebrew, do not let anything fall that you have said. In other words, don't let these words fall to the ground. Don't fail to do anything that you have recommended. And then when Haman rushed home after this to his wife Zeresh, she told him that he was beginning to fall before Mordecai, Esther 6.13. So the narrator strategically uses the Hebrew word nephal here in this chapter to describe Haman falling on top of Esther. A nice providential twist. And so the king is shocked that Haman would assault Esther, and he orders his death. And one of the eunuchs suggests that they use the very gallows that Haman was building to impel Mordecai on. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, said this God loves to counterplot politicians. He makes use of their own wit to undo them, and hangs Haman upon his own gallows. How ironic that Haman, the man who was seated high above everyone else in Esther chapter three, verse one, He is now hanged on his own gallows high above everyone else, for everyone else in the city of Susa to see. What providential reversals. It's proof that God is good. Haman, and that he's not safe. Haman is hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. The disgrace and humiliation that he planned for Mordecai has now become his. And Mordecai got the honor that Haman desperately wanted for himself. And Haman got the gallows that he desperately wanted for Mordecai. What providential reversals. It's a reminder that God is not safe, but he is good. If you want to attack his people, Jesus is not safe. If you want to challenge Jesus, he's not safe. But if you turn to him for mercy, he's good. If you turn to him in repentance, he's good. He's merciful. He's gracious. He forgives sinners and rebels. But if you want to go to war with Jesus, hear me. He is not safe. To the racist, I say to you today, God is not safe. Haman was a racist. Haman's evil was that he was racist. He wanted to kill the Jews. I just returned from a pastor's conference this week, and on the plane, I finally got to to sit down and watch the movie Selma about the march with Martin Luther King in the 60s. And I was brought to tears as I watched it. I just thought, what evil? What evil? was propagated in the 60s because of the color of someone's skin. My goodness! What evil! I was so disturbed watching that. And we still have issues in our country today. Now, I think there's a lot of racism for different races, but at least particularly for the African American people in America, we're still not removed from that we still got a long way to go. How arrogant and prideful for anyone to be racist. And I think all of us somewhere in our heart still can be. There are little doors in our hearts where we are, where we need the gospel. But how awful to hate someone because of the color of their skin. To the abortionist, I say, God is not safe. To the child abuser, the pedophile, the human trafficker, I say God is not safe. But he's good. And he will forgive you if you turn to him. He's merciful to rebels. Come and have your sins washed away. Now Haman couched his evil racist motives in a word that had two meanings and sounded the same. And he ends up meeting his demise on a couch with the two most powerful people in the world at the time. He learned that God is not safe, but he is good. He learned that God is good to his people. He learned that God can reverse any situation. Listen, God can reverse any situation that you're going through right now. Any sort of lies that have been told about you, gossip, slander, manipulation... You serve the God of great reversals, Christian. God can turn anything around at a dinner party. Jesus is the God of great reversals, and he wields his providence for his people. And one of the chief purposes of God's providence providence is to set things right. And you may see his hand do that in this life or maybe in the next life. Where everything sad will come untrue. But he will set things right. And he will do it with perfect justice. And you can trust him right now for that. He's good. He does good. He does good for his people, the church. And while the world is busy building its gallows, Jesus is busy building his church. That ought to comfort your heart today. Yes, God is angry. He will not forsake his holy cause He will not allow us to be in the way of what he has planned for his universe. He will not abide by our no's when we say no to him. But remember, it's not the anger of a vengeful, evil person who is out of control and wants to harm us. It's the anger of grace. It is an anger of a God who is full of zeal for his holy cause, for his glory, and who will not lose his own. He will not lose his elect. God the Father promised his elect to his son Jesus. And Jesus said, I will not lose one of them. And so as his people, the church, we must quit looking at the anger of God as the embarrassing uncle of Christian theology. I know we'd rather kind of hide it. It makes us uncomfortable and it embarrasses us. But in a world where evil exists, in a world full of Haman's, the anger of God is your hope. When I read about, I just read yesterday about a girl who was taken for six months and abused by 15 to 20 men a night for six months until she was covered. The anger of God is my hope for that situation. Those people need to pay. Sorry, I'm getting worked up. You don't want a God who looks at the fallenness of this this world. You don't want a God who looks at human rebellion. You don't want a God who looks at the Hamans of this world. You don't want a God who looks at all the brokenness around us and says, it's okay, because it's not okay. You want a God who will stand up and say, I will stand against that which stands against my holy will. I will stand against any Haman that tries to stop my plans or harm my church. That anger is the hope. Of the universe. Because God is who He is, that anger is never a contradiction of His love. It's never a contradiction of His grace, because in the magnificence of His holiness, His anger and His grace kiss. At the cross where Jesus died, God's anger and His grace kiss. Haman was lifted up in pride, and Jesus humbled Himself. And died for our sins and our rebellion on the cross. And if you would like to experience God with that humility, here's how you can. You can look at the cross. You see a wise man hanging there, dying in the place of fools like you and me, because he loves you and me. You may despise him this morning like Haman did, but he does not despise you. You may think you are above him, But he humbled himself for you. Look to the cross. Look away from yourself and look at him and keep looking until your pride melts. You can be safe today from the God who is not safe. Come to Jesus. Be safe and be satisfied. Drink of living water and finally be satisfied. And then you will worship. You'll be like rat and mole in the book, The Wind and the Willows. In the story, when rat and mole go looking for the baby otter, they stumble into the presence of God. It reads this way. Suddenly, the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water. He bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, He felt wonderfully at peace and happy. Rat? He found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid? murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never! And yet, and yet, oh mole, I am afraid. And then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. God is not safe. Oh, but he is good. Jesus is not safe. But he is so good. Jesus welcomes you today with a smile. And the table before us is proof that his anger and grace kissed at the cross. So come today. Crouch to the earth. Bow your head and worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that we can worship. And worship is really just joyful trembling. And so we come this morning, Father, joyfully trembling in your presence because you are so good to sinners like us. We don't deserve it. We're rebels. We're selfish. Every day we're building our own little kingdoms. We get mad when we don't get our way. And yet you're so merciful. We lift ourselves up in pride and Jesus humbled himself by dying the death on the cross for our sins. I I just don't have any categories for you, God. You're holy. You're set apart. You're different. No one is like you. But we worship you today. Forgive us of our sins as we come to eat the Lord's Supper We examine ourselves, Lord, and after hearing your word, we're cut down by the weight of the law, but we hear the good news of the gospel. All that you are for us in your son, Jesus, is true, and we believe it. Forgive us of our sins, and may you strengthen us by your grace as we eat and drink and celebrate the peace that we have with you through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.